This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. This is episode number 34. We're looking at Genesis 2.24. What does it mean in Genesis 2.24 when it says that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife? Does it mean, as I have sometimes heard it preached, that a man should abandon his parents for the sake of his wife? Well, maybe so. But if that's true, how then can we honor our father and mother all the days of our lives, as Scripture also instructs us to do? That's sort of what we're going to look at today when we consider Genesis 2.24. Before we get to that, though, I want to thank all of you who partnered with me last week. I gave an invitation to my podcast last week to help me partner help partner with me in uh, running, producing, publishing this podcast. It gets very expensive. And uh, many of you stepped up to the plate and gave very generous gifts. Thank you very, very much. Your gifts um, caught me completely up for the year. All my expenses up up through this month are covered. Uh, And so your gifts were a great encouragement and blessing to me. Thank you very much. Now, if you were thinking of giving, or maybe you still are and you didn't get a chance, listen, uh, there are always future expenses that have yet to be covered the rest of the year, in fact. So uh, if this is something you still want to do, you can just go to redeeminggod.com partner. And there's an area at the bottom of the page where you can make a one-time gift or even set up a recurring donation if that's what you would like to do. Uh, thank you in advance if that's something you choose to do. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash partner to learn a little bit more. So Genesis 2.24 is one of those verses in the Bible that's caused a lot of marital conflict over the years. Uh, It's not alone in that regard. There's lots of verses in the Bible like that. For example, uh, one of them is 1 Corinthians 7, 4 and 5. But the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. (laughs) And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another with consent for a time, or without consent for a time. Um, I, I know a marriage that ended because of that verse. It ended in divorce because of that one verse. I am not making that up. It's a very sad situation. Another verse, though, Paul keeps it up. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 11, 5 and 6. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. If a woman's head is not covered, let her be shorn. But if it, if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So apparently, according to the Apostle Paul, a woman's options are to have her head shaved or wear a bonnet. (laughs) Those are your only two options. You good with that, women? How about Ephesians 5, 22 and 23? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Um, Men, if you have ever said to your wife, woman, submit! (laughs) You know how well that goes over. 
And then uh, don't forget 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, to, but to be in silence. Uh, and we know why Paul doesn't let women speak up. Because of Titus 2, 4 and 5. Admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So apparently it's blasphemy not to be meek and mild homemaker who stays at home with the children and has dinner on at six o'clock and obeys her husband all the time. <laughs> I was just talking with my wife last night and she was joking around about inventing a religion that is written and dominated by women. And she had some fantastic ideas about things that the, the women would force the men to wear and what they would force the men to do. I'm sort of toying with writing a uh, sort of a fun little blog post about it just to have a little fun with it and see what Christianity would be like if all of the apostles and prophets had ended up being women instead of men. I, I imagine things would look very, very different, and none of these verses would likely be in the Bible. But anyway, uh, that's probably enough challenging idea for that whole concept. The thing is, a lot of those ideas you probably recognize came from Paul, and I always laugh at that because Paul was unmarried. I don't know if you've ever recognized uh, the people who, who seem to know the best about advice, giving you marital advice, are those who are either young marrieds and haven't been at it very long, or they never got married in the first place. I sometimes think Paul really should have kept all his marital advice to himself and saved the rest of us a lot of headache and hassle. Uh, maybe it was these sorts of behaviors and ideas that caused Paul to never get married in the first place. <laughs> uh, anyway, look, I, here's the thing. I, I know those verses are in scripture. I know they have their role and their place. And I know that there is truth in there. And I'm, I, I'm poking a little fun at Paul. And I, I think up in heaven, he's laughing along with me. But we have to be very, very careful. Here's the point. Be very, very careful about taking a, a real sort of literalistic reading interpretation of Paul's marital advice, okay? And the reason is this. Paul was writing those verses to a particular group of people at a particular time in history who were dealing with particular circumstances and situations and educational and economic levels and all, right, all sorts of issues that do not at all apply to us today. If you were to go back in time and adopt their culture, their language, their time, and all of that, okay, then what Paul says, based on that situation, in that circumstance, it might apply to you. But it, 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 we cannot make a direct correlation over to ourselves today. And besides that, as we're seeing as we work our way through Genesis, uh, there is a vast difference sometimes between what we think the Bible says and what the Bible actually says. Uh, we're never going to come to a full and complete understanding of what the Bible actually says. That's the whole process of Bible study, hermeneutics, understanding the rules of Bible interpretation and the cultural context, historical context, okay, all of that stuff. That's why we study Scripture, so hopefully we can come to an understanding of what the Bible really says, but uh, that's not going to happen this side of heaven, uh, and that's why we engage in Scripture. So those verses in the, in the, from Paul... Look, even though you may think you know what those verses mean and how to apply them to your life today, be humble and recognize that you may not. Anyway, what do all those verses mean? 
Look, we don't have time for them. But those are for future episodes of the One Verse podcast, about four or five hundred years from now when I get around to them <laughs> in heaven. All right, let's have a Bible study then. I'm not going to tackle them now, probably not in the next couple of years at least. Uh, today we're looking at Genesis 2.24. Let me read it for you. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this verse may not have caused as many marital problems as those verses from Paul, but I do know marriages in which, you know, one spouse feels like the other one is too dependent on the parents or talks to the parents too much or gets input from the parents too much, or or maybe they haven't, you know, cleaved together as much as one spouse would like or something. And so basically the argument sort of, you know, one spouse says to the other, or maybe it's mutual, you know, you need to stop talking to your parents so much. Stop calling your mom. You need to focus more on me, you know, or or in the case of an argument, you know, stop siding with your parents on this. You're my wife or you're my husband. You need to side with me, something like that. And look, um, just complete, complete transparency here. My wife and I have had numerous of those exact arguments. That's why I know what often gets said. And I will say also with complete honesty that uh, the fault was all mine. So I, I am guilty of a lot of those arguments. Anyway, um, guilty of what my wife, Wendy, was saying to me in those, in those arguments. Anyway, I share that. Our marriage is much better now, thankfully. Uh, mainly because I have done a better job leaving and cleaving. But uh, I don't want to get in sidetracked on that too much. What what I want to do is help you come to an understanding of Genesis 2.24 that might, you know, help you learn how to apply this text to your own marriage, how I've learned to apply it to mine. And I hope that what I share with you today doesn't provide further ammunition for marital arguments. I strongly believe that Bible verses should never be used as weapons uh, in any conversation. Someone shows up at your door, don't don't shoot them with Bible verses. You know, you're having a disagreement with someone at work, don't shoot them with Bible verses. You're having an argument with your spouse, don't shoot them with Bible verses. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked a lot today, that happens. Genesis 2.24, look, to to, to understand Genesis 2.24, we got to go back and uh, begin looking at Genesis 2.23. Remember, back in 2.23... Adam, he's just seen his wife, uh, the woman, Eve, for the first time. And in the New King James, it says uh, that he says, he sees her and he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, it's interesting here, the the woman, the the name here is not Eve, it's Isha. Uh, The Hebrew word is Isha. And later, Adam changes his wife's name to Eve. It's interesting. That's in 320. Uh, You may recall that uh, what I said early in previous episodes about Adam naming the animals. Remember, Adam was imitating God. God created things in Genesis 1, and then God named them. And this was a way for God to show dominion and authority over that which he had created. And so, in a way... When God told Adam to name the animals, God was inviting Adam to imitate God in exercising dominion and authority over over the creation, over the thing that God gave Adam to rule. So sometimes people look at Genesis 2.23 when Adam names his wife and says, See, Adam has authority over the woman. Therefore, men today must have authority over their wives and so on. But uh, that is not... 
That is not, I strongly disagree with that reading of this text. Uh, the reason we can object is because of the vision Adam had from verse 21 of the woman being drawn from his side. Uh, in a sense, the, because God gave this vision to Adam of the woman being drawn from his side rather than from the dust of the ground. Remember, Adam himself came, came from dust, from dirt, from a dirt clod. We saw that in previous episodes. Uh, and all the animals came from the dust of the ground. That's what we read, read earlier. So the woman alone, though, came from flesh and bone. And so, in a sense, she is a superior, well, maybe we couldn't say superior creation, uh, but at least she is an equal creation. She is part of Adam. That's the point from, from uh, the, the, the context here, especially from verse 21 with the vision and all that. The point is, she is not inferior to him, the way the animals are, in a way. She is his equal. She's different, for sure. They're not the same. Don't misunderstand me when I say they're equal. They are equal, but they're different. They're, it, Christians need to celebrate those differences, uh, but, but uh, they are equal. So when Adam names her woman, we shouldn't read this as a sign of him trying to have, you know, exert his authority or have dominion and rulership over her. Instead, uh, even by the way he names her with his own name, that the word for man there was Ish, so Ish and Isha, uh, rather it's a, it's a recognition that she is his, that she is him, that she is his perfect partner in life, that she's going to join him. That's what it is, this joint rulership in carrying out their God-given tasks of being the image and likeness of God on earth. Uh, again, back in from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it is man and woman together who were created in the image of God. Not one or the other, it's together. So she's taken from his side, and she will rule and reign over creation with him at his side. Speaking with Ed Underwood today for my uh, future theology.fm podcast, and he said, he's a pastor of Church of the Open Door, he's moving over to a ministry, at recentered, uh, well, he's trying to keep that under wraps. So I won't say that right now. You'll have to listen to theology.fm. Uh, anyway, he said that he would love to see in churches no more, no more elder elders, but elder couples, uh, so that the the elders and the wives both attend the meeting. You know, I, I was uh, I, I've attended more than my fair share of elder meetings, and I always know what happens. We make decisions in the elder meetings, and then we come home and we tell our wives, and they say, "You decided what?" <laughs> Well, did you ask this question? Well, did you think of this? Did you consider what that's going to do to this? You know, and we, oh, no, I didn't think about that. That happens all the time. So uh, he thought it would be great to have elder couples that come to the elder meetings instead of just the men themselves. And I think that's a great idea, especially drawn here from Genesis 2, where Adam and Eve are partners in ruling and reigning with God over God's creation. Uh, and I believe that is exactly how Moses wanted us to understand the text. And support for this is found in Genesis 2.24 that we're looking at today. Genesis 2.24 is a commentary, a sort of a statement, a summary statement by Moses on what has happened previously, especially in Genesis 2.23. We see that because of this word, therefore. Uh, this is a statement, it's sort of a commentary. And here in Genesis 2.24, Moses is saying that men and women are one flesh, they're they're equal partners in this joint venture with God. And that means that anything God has given the man to do up to this point, he is now also assigned to the women. 
Um, and now Adam was supposed to instruct and teach Eve how to do everything that God told Adam to do. We'll see how well he does at that when we get into chapter 3. But uh, in this way, Eve was supposed to imitate Adam and imitating God. And together, they're supposed to raise up a human race who will imitate them in imitating God. And remember, I told you in previous podcast episodes that imitation is so important as we're going forward. And we see that here as well. God creates someone who's supposed to imitate Adam in imitating God. Uh, Again, no inferiority there or anything like that. It's an equal partnership where one teaching the other one what they have learned. Um, But what about this statement about leaving and cleaving at the beginning of the verse? What does that mean? And this is the part really that has caused all the marital stress over the years. Uh, Quite often, sort of as I indicated, usually this verse, what happens in a marriage is that one partner feels that the other is relying too much on the parents. You know, and and so the the partner who feels this way quotes Genesis 2.24, you know, stop siding with your mother. You need to leave your father and mother and cleave to me. You know, you need to be on my side. And, you know, to to be completely honest, uh, there is great wisdom in in that interpretation of the text. I'm not sure it's exactly accurate, as we're going to see in just a minute. But to be completely honest, if you had to choose... Would you rather be on speaking terms with the person with whom you're married to or the parents whom you have left? (laughs) Look, if you want peace in your house, it's better to be on speaking terms with the people in your house rather than the people in some other house across town or across the country, right? You may love those people who live in another house across town or across the country, and you may owe them a lot because they raised you and brought you up in this world and all of that. Okay, I understand all that. But if you want peace in your house, well, you need to have peace in your house. This is the person you live with. So there's much wisdom in that application. But the thing is, is there's uh, some problems with it, too, with this leaving, this sort of modern Western interpretation of leaving your father and mother. First of all, notice that the statement's only said to the man. So if you're going to use this in your marriage and understand it that way, Uh, Only the man is required to leave. So, man, you're listening to this. You can never, ever, ever quote Genesis 2.24 at your wife because you think she's relying too much on her parents, calling her mother too much, anything like that. There's nothing, no instruction in here about the woman leaving her father and mother. Okay, so that's number one. It only applies to the man. Whatever it means, it's, it's only said to the man. Second, there is this question about how to fit Genesis 2.24 with texts like Exodus 20.12, which Paul also quotes, by the way, in Ephesians 6. And it's this instruction to honor your father and mother. You know, obey your parents all the days of your life. You know, does this only apply to when you're a child? No, it doesn't appear to. It seems to apply for your entire life. Okay, so how does that fit? How can you leave your father and mother, but also honor your father and mother all the days of your life? And obey them. So that's the second sort of problem with this modern Western interpretation. But third, and this is probably the biggest problem, really, with this modern interpretation of leaving your parents. And it's this. There is no record anywhere in Scripture of anyone actually leaving their parents' house when they got married. In fact, you look at historical records, you look at Scripture, you look at cultural records of how people in ancient Hebrew times... Uh, lived, when they got married, what they actually did is the newly married couple moved in with the husband's family. 
exactly the opposite of, of what happens here, what is described here in Genesis 2.24. They're not le- the man's not leaving his father and mother. Instead, him and his new bride are moving in with his father and mother. Uh, what would happen, now, not exactly moving in, what would happen is the bridegroom would usually build uh, an addition, a, a wing, a little small room, an additional room onto the family house, onto the family complex. So he would go home, they'd get betrothed, he would go and uh, he would build an addition onto the family house. And when it was done, then he would, there'd be this wedding celebration. They would go through the town and he would pick up his his bride and he would bring her back to his father's house so that they might live there together. And then they would have this big wedding celebration, and then they would live there. You might recall this is very similar to what Jesus described in John 14, 2, that he is going to his Father's house to prepare a dwelling place for us, for the church, for the bride of Christ, and that when he's done, he will return and bring us back to be with him, okay? So, uh, again, even from the description of Jesus (laughs) and what he is going to do with his bride, the church. Even he is not following that modern Western sort of leave your father and mother, have nothing to do with them anymore, you know, or you talk to them or, uh, you know, just leave them. Sort of the modern application of how this verse is sometimes taught. So, you know, that's Genesis 2.24. We have all these problems with it. And it just seems like the way we often understand it and use it and apply it today is just a, a complete misunderstanding of what the text means. So what does it mean? Well, there's not, obviously, no surprise here, lots and lots of theories. Pick up a Bible commentary on Genesis, and you'll see some of those theories for yourself. Let me just give you a few pointers. First of all, whatever Genesis 2.24 means, it does mean to follow on the argument from Genesis 2.23. I mean, the word therefore, you got to know what it's there for, right, at the beginning. Uh, Some Bible translators say, for this reason. So, whatever Genesis 2.24 is saying, it needs to fit with what we read in Genesis 2.23. And again, that modern Bible translation doesn't really fit. Genesis 2.24 doesn't really seem to follow Genesis 2.23, at least not the way we understand verse 24. So, um, 23 again says, Adam sees the woman. He says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. And that's a decent translation from the English. Uh, The Hebrew, though... Verse 23, it's a little more, well, emphatic. A literal translation might be uh, really literal. This! Exclamation point. You know, now! Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Okay? It doesn't flow quite as well as, as our English translations do. And I think that's intentional, though, because what we're seeing here is Adam's excitement. He's sort of at a loss for words. What comes out is a little disjointed, but he's excited at seeing a woman for the very first time. And he not only recognizes her as, you know, being like himself, uh, you know, as being the perfect companion that he's been searching for, but he also is responding mentally, emotionally, and yes, physically at seeing her. At we could almost, I suppose to smooth out verse, verse 20, the first part of verse 23, we could almost smooth it out and say, now this is what I've been looking for. She's me. She's mine. I love her. And in fact, that uh, I, I might have mentioned this last week. I can't remember. That word there for flesh, 
here in, in verse 23 is Besar. And you might remember, go back and listen to that episode from last week. Um, it has, uh, in the Bible, that word basar, flesh, meat, it has sexual overtones, and I'll leave the rest up to your imagination. I, basically, I think what we have in, in, in Genesis 2.23 is a statement from Adam about how much he appreciates looking at Eve and how he is responding to her. I, I'm trying to be, you know, a little circumspect in my description here. I'm trying to keep my podcast PG. Uh, I, you get the point. Adam is very appreciative. You know, maybe a, a modern translation might be va 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 boom. <laughs> wow, look at her, amazing. She's perfect. You know, really, what what he's saying is something more like this. Yeah, I guess you're just what I needed. He didn't know it before, but now that he's showing up, he's like, yes, that's it. That's her. She's the one. Now, this one, this time. Whoa! Okay? you got to hear the excitement in Adam's voice. And that understanding of verse 23 helps us understand verse 24 a little better. And why the therefore, what it's there for. Uh, It helps us understand, especially in light of that ancient Jewish custom of, uh, you know, and how Jesus sort of taught it in John 14. Uh, the, the verse is not teaching that a man is supposed to physically leave his family behind and go live elsewhere with his new wife. Uh, you know, that might be a wise practice in, to, in the modern Western world. If you want to, I, I highly recommend it. When you get married, don't go live with your parents. Another mistake I made, by the way, uh, my parents were very gracious, no fault to them whatsoever, uh, but not a good way to start a marriage. Um, anyway, enough said on that as well. Uh, but the thing is, is, uh, this is how it worked back then. Again, the husband would build an addition onto the family household. Then when it was done, he would bring his wife and they would live there. And, um, imagine though, what it would be like if he did not build that addition on. Well, imagine, first of all, living in a Back then, most homes were run one-room houses. Everybody slept in the same room. Again, I want you to imagine for a minute what that would be like as a child growing up, and most of these Jewish families had very many children. So you're the oldest, and you get to 9, 10, 12, 14, and your parents are still having children, okay? It's a one-room house. I think you get the picture here. You bring a wife back into that situation, that is a really bad situation. So, again, I think we need to understand that this leaving isn't exactly leaving. It's staying, but in a separate room. So he is leaving, but he's also staying to help support his family. He, he, he's leaving the room that his father and mother live in, and instead he and his new bride are living in a different room close by, but he is still there to honor and respect and support his father and mother. Uh, And then, of course, they have the other room, so now he can cleave to his wife and become one flesh with her. Uh, Zion Ezevit, in his book, uh, there's a link in the show notes to this, He, he points out, in fact, that this word leave here is translated elsewhere in the Bible as strengthen. So, with that sort of in mind, you could translate Genesis 2.24 is that a man will strengthen his father and mother and cling to his wife. 
So he kind of takes this, this understanding as well. He says, Every son is obliged to care for his father and mother and to cling to his wife simultaneously. And he brings out this whole deal with the, uh, the room and uh, staying with the father and mother and all of that. Anyway, the point of Genesis 2.24 is not about leaving your parents behind and just living life with your wife going forward. Instead, uh, it, it's about making a place that is comfortable and welcoming for the newly married couple to begin their life together, while at the same time having family around to help the newly married couple with all of the stresses and problems and burdens that often come in a newly married relationship. So uh, that's sort of Genesis 2.24. Okay? You leave in the sense that you're creating a place close with, to your family, with the family support system, but in a way that's going to be comfortable and private for you and your new bride. Uh, and then again, becoming one flesh. The, the, really, the point of Genesis 2.24 is the importance of the physical relationship in marriage. Um, there, there needs to be a place where the, 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 the man and the woman can enjoy one another. The, the va-va-va-voom of the marriage relationship and not face the embarrassment and the awkwardness, you know, of having parents in the same room with you or other siblings around in the same room with you. That would be very bad. So Genesis 2.24 is basically sound marital advice. Yes, get away from your parents, but don't abandon them. You need them around. The main thing is to cleave to one another to become one flesh in a place that is your own. I don't know if you remember the first commandment, sort of the first task, first activity that God assigned to Adam and Eve. We saw it in episode 21 when we looked at uh, Genesis 1, 28 to 31. The very first activity was that they would be fruitful and multiply. Remember that? Uh, the first activity God assigns to humans is procreation. Anyway, that same idea is brought up here. He's now created the man and the woman, and he says, all right, go have fun. Go procreate. God wants married couples to enjoy the physical side of marriage. It's not just because the fun of it, but sociologists, psychologists, everybody tells us that this is where the mental and the emotional and the spiritual bond is cemented between a husband and a wife. There is no union, the, the real and lasting union, becoming one with each other, the mental, spiritual, emotional unity between a man and a wife really does somehow focus around this physical union as well. Somehow there is a connection that happens there, which I don't understand, that is so central to having a strong and lasting marriage. That's what God is really all about here. And that's what Genesis 2.24 is calling you and I to do. Now, I hope by sharing this, I haven't given you more ammunition for a fight or an argument. Uh, look, there's, there's three things couples argue about most. Sex, money, and in-laws. And this verse deals with two of them. Sex and in-laws. So uh, I hope that the way I've explained this text sort of shows you that this isn't a verse that you can use to bludgeon your spouse over the head in an argument. You know, in fact, in, in light of those verses, which I sort of opened this podcast episode with, all those ones from Paul, let me, let me just close out this episode with a little bit of marital advice of my own. And unlike Paul, I speak as someone who is married and has been through many difficult times in our marriage. And here's my advice. However you understand Genesis 2.24 and all those verses from Paul about marriage, when you're in an argument with your spouse, never, 
ever, 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 ever quote a Bible verse. <laughs> Do yourself a favor, just leave the Bible out of it, all right? Bible verses should never be used as ammunition in an argument. When in the heat of battle, don't shoot Bible verses at your spouse. Uh, if that is how you use the Bible, it, all it really shows is you don't know the first thing about the Bible or those Bible verses. Anyway, I'm out of time. That's where I'm going to end the podcast. We're going to finish Genesis 2 next week when we look at Genesis 2.25. And remember, if you find this podcast helpful in understanding Scripture, navigating life, and you want to help cover the costs and expenses of running this podcast, you can make a one-time gift or set up a recurring donation by going to redeeminggod.com slash partner. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, And thank you in advance if you end up sending in a gift. It really, really helps and is an encouragement to me. I hope you found today's podcast liberating and encouraging as well. And I look forward to seeing you next week, sharing with you more as we seek to live more and more like Jesus Christ. Thank you.